You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 155, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Christ and the Human Soul. It's in four parts. This is Part 3. These ten lectures are translated by Agnes Schneeberg de Stur. This is the third lecture in the third part. I am numbering it number eight in the whole set of ten, given in Nurköping on July 15, 1914. One of the concepts that must come to mind when we speak of Christ's relationship to the human soul is undoubtedly that of guilt and sin. We know what incisive significance the concepts of guilt and sin had, for example, in Paul's view of Christianity. We have to acknowledge, however, that our present age is less inclined to develop a really deep inner understanding of the broader connections between the concepts guilt and sin and death and immortality, as they are found in Paul's writings. This can be attributed to our materialistic times. We only need recall what I said in the first lecture of this course, that there can be no true immortality of the human soul without a continuation of consciousness extending to the conditions after death. Assuming that consciousness ends with death, would be tantamount to having to accept a specific fact, the fact that the human being is actually not immortal. For if the human being's essential nature were to have an unconscious continuance after death, then this would mean that our most important aspect, that which makes us into human beings, would not exist after death. Assuming that an unconscious human soul lives on after death, would amount to little more than claiming, as materialism also does, that a sum of atoms remains, even when the human body is destroyed. For Paul, it was still a rock-solid fact that one can speak of immortality only where individual consciousness is maintained. And since he had to think of individual consciousness as being subject to sin and guilt, it was quite natural for Paul to think, quote, if a human being's consciousness is obscured after death by sin and guilt or by the effects of sin and guilt, in other words, if consciousness is disrupted after death by sin and guilt, then this means that sin and guilt really kill the human being as soul, as spirit, close quote. The modern materialistic way of thinking is, of course, far remote from this, including that of many modern philosophical thinkers who are content to be able to speak of a continuance of the life of the human soul, when in fact human immortality can really only be identified by a conscious continuance of the human soul's existence after death. Now, this may, of course, easily lead to a difficulty, especially for those with an anthroposophical worldview. To perceive this difficulty, we need only look at the mutual relationship between the concept of guilt and sin and the concept of karma. Many anthroposophists deal with this difficulty 
simply by saying what we believe in karma. It means that a human being who has incurred guilt in an earlier incarnation now bears this guilt along as part of his or her karma and then makes amends for it later. And so in the course of incarnations a compensation is brought about. This is where the difficulty begins. For then one could say, quote, how can this be reconciled with what has been adopted as a Christian concept, for example, of forgiveness of sins through Christ? Close quote. And yet, at the same time, the idea of the forgiveness of sins is obviously closely connected with true Christianity. We need only think of the example of Christ on the cross between the two malefactors. The malefactor on the left mocks Christ, quote, if you be Christ, save yourself and us, close quote. The malefactor on the right responds to this by saying that the other ought not to speak in that way, that both had deserved this fate of crucifixion, which was consistent with their deeds, whereas he was innocent and yet had to undergo the same fate. The malefactor on the right then goes on to say, quote, Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Close quote. And Christ answers him, quote, Verily I say unto you, Today you shall be with me in paradise. Close quote. Luke 23, 39-43 One cannot simply dismiss these words away from the gospel, nor dispute them away, for they are very important and significant. However, someone familiar with anthroposophy is now confronted with a predicament arising from the question, if this malefactor on the right is meant to clear away the karma he has incurred, then what does it mean when Christ, as though pardoning and forgiving him, says, quote, Today you shall be with me in paradise. Close quote. For at this point one could say that the malefactor on the right will have to wash away his karmic debt, just as the one on the left. Why does Christ make a distinction between the malefactor on the right and the one on the left? There is no doubt at all that this question presents a difficulty for the anthroposophical conception of karma, a difficulty that is not easy to solve. It can be solved, however, when we, precisely with the help of spiritual scientific research, delve more deeply into Christianity when we try to enter more deeply into Christianity. And I would now like to approach the subject from quite another side, a side whose essentialness is already known to you, but one that can make certain related circumstances more accessible. You will remember how we have often spoken of Lucifer and Araman. Please recall in particular how Lucifer and Araman are represented in my mystery dramas. As soon as we begin to look at this matter in what could be called a human anthropomorphic sense and simply make of Lucifer a kind of inner criminal and of Araman a kind of outer criminal, difficulties arise with respect to finding our bearings. For we should not forget that it must also be said that Lucifer, besides being the bringer of evil in the world, the inner evil, that arises through human passions, is also the bringer of freedom, that Lucifer plays an important role in the universe. And similarly, 
it must be said of Araman that he too plays an important part in the universe. When we first began to speak more extensively of Lucifer and Araman, it was our experience that many of those familiar with spiritual science became uneasy. They still had a feeling of what people have always thought about Lucifer, that he is a fearful criminal in the world, against whom one must be on guard. Naturally, those familiar with anthroposophy cannot unite themselves unreservedly with this feeling because they also know that they must assign to Lucifer an important role in the universe. And yet at the same time, Lucifer needs to be seen as an opponent of the progressive gods, as a being who, in a certain sense, thwarts the plan of evolution, as an enemy of those gods to whom reverence is rightly due. And so, when we speak of Lucifer in this way, we are in effect ascribing an important role to an enemy of the gods, a role in the universe as a whole. And we must do this in a similar manner in the case of Araman. From a certain point of view, it is quite understandable that this feeling would cause people to ask, quote, What approach should I take, then, when it comes to Lucifer and Araman? Should I love them or hate them? I do not rightly know what to do with them. Close quote. How does all this come about? When we speak of Lucifer and Araman, it should become quite clear from how we speak of them that they are spoken of as beings who, by virtue of their whole essential nature, do not rightly belong to the physical plane, that they have their mission and task in the cosmos outside the physical plane, in the spiritual worlds. In the lectures given in the summer in Munich, I strongly emphasized that the essence of this matter lies in the fact that Lucifer and Araman have their role, assigned to them by the progressive gods in the spiritual world, and that there is a discrepancy and disharmony only when they transfer their role into the physical plane and then claim rights for themselves that are not strictly allotted to them. But we must allow for one fact which the human soul does not readily allow for when these things are spoken of, namely the fact that our judgment our human judgment as we use it holds good only for the physical plane and that right as this judgment may be for the physical plane it cannot simply be transferred to the higher worlds. It is for this reason that we must find our way into anthroposophy slowly and gradually in order to broaden our judgments and to widen our world of concepts and ideas. And it is also for this reason the people today, accustomed as they are to the materialistic way of thinking, have such difficulty in understanding anthroposophy, although all of it can be understood. They do not want to broaden their judgment, but instead prefer to hold on to judgments that are only valid for the physical plane. If we say, quote, one power is hostile to another, close quote, then from the standpoint of the physical plane, it is quite right to say, quote, enmity is something that is offensive, it ought not to exist, close quote. But the same thing does not hold good for the higher planes. There our judgment needs to be widened. In order for the world as a whole to be able to exist, it is necessary, just as it is necessary, for example, in the domain of electricity, for there to be positive and negative electricity, 
that there is spiritual opposition as well. It is necessary that the spiritual beings oppose one another. Here the truth of a saying of Heraclitus becomes evident, that not only love but also strife constitutes the universe. It is only when Lucifer works upon the human soul, and when, through the human soul, strife is brought into the physical world, that this strife is wrong. But this no longer holds good for the higher worlds. Their opposition between the spiritual beings is actually something that belongs to the whole fabric, the whole evolution of the universe. This implies that as soon as we approach the higher worlds, we must apply different standards, adopt different color nuances with respect to our judgments. That is why it can be shocking for people when we have to speak of Lucifer and Araman on the one hand as the opponents of the gods, and then again, on the other hand, as beings that are necessary for the whole course of the cosmic order. Hence we must, above all else, bear firmly in mind that human beings are bound to come into collision with the cosmic order if they allow judgments that apply to the physical plane to hold good for the higher worlds as well. Now, and this lies at the root of the whole matter, what must again and again be emphasized is that Christ as the Christ does not belong to the other beings of the physical plane. That from the moment of the baptism in the Jordan, a being who had not previously existed on earth, a being who does not belong to the ranks of earthly beings, entered into the body of Jesus of Nazareth. And so what we encounter in Christ is a being who could rightly say to the disciples, quote, I am from above, but you are from below, close quote, John 8.23, which means, quote, I am a being of the heavenly domain, but you are of the earthly domain, close quote. And now let us consider what this implies. It implies the following. Must the earthly judgment, which is entirely justifiable in its own right, and which everyone on earth must uphold in so far as he or she is an earthly being, must this judgment also be the judgment of that cosmic being who as Christ entered the body of Jesus? The being who entered into the body of Jesus at the baptism in the Jordan does not apply an earthly but a heavenly judgment. He must judge differently from the way human beings must judge. And now let us consider the full significance of the words spoken on Golgotha. The malefactor on the left believes that in the Christ we encounter merely an earthly being, not a being of a different realm, a realm that is beyond the earthly domain. But with his death imminent, the malefactor on the right comes to the awareness, quote, Your kingdom, O Christ, is another. Think of me when you are in your kingdom, close quote. At this moment, the malefactor on the right shows that he has an inkling of the fact that Christ belongs to another kingdom, where a power of judgment holds sway that is very different from that on earth. Then, from out of the consciousness that he stands in his kingdom, Christ is able to answer, quote, Verily, because you have an intimation of my kingdom, this day, that is, with death, you shall be with me in my kingdom, close quote. Here we have an indication of the extra-earthly Christ power 
that lets the human individuality ascend into a spiritual kingdom. Earthly judgment, human judgment, obviously must say, as regards his karma, the malefactor on the right will have to compensate for his guilt, just as the one on the left. With respect to a heavenly judgment, however, something else applies. But this is only an initial way of looking at this matter, for obviously people can now say, yes, then it is simply a case of the heavenly judgment contradicting the earthly judgment. How is it that Christ can forgive where earthly judgment demands karmic justice? This is indeed a difficult question, but we will try to approach it more closely in the course of this lecture. I would like to point out expressly, however, that we are touching here on one of the most difficult questions of esoteric science. We shall need to make a distinction which the human soul would prefer not to make, because it may not be eager to follow a specific subject matter to its ultimate consequences, due to the fact that it may involve certain difficulties. And so I would like to point out that we have a difficult contemplation ahead of us, and that you will perhaps have to turn this matter over in your minds many times in order to get to its real essence. We must begin by making a distinction. We must first consider one of the aspects involved, namely what happens when objective justice is carried out through karma. Here we must be quite clear that human beings are indeed subject to karma, that they have to make karmic compensation for wrongdoings. And anyone who gives this some deeper thought would not really want this to be otherwise. For suppose a person has done something wrong. The moment this wrong has been done, the person in question is less perfect than he was before, and the former grade of perfection can only be regained when the person has made up for the injustice. A human being, therefore, must want to make amends, for only through this compensation and in working through this deed of compensation can he regain the stage of perfection that had been reached before the wrong was done. Thus, for the sake of our own progress, we can really only wish that there is karma as objective justice. For strictly speaking, if we truly grasp the meaning of human freedom, we would have no desire to have a particular sin forgiven in the sense that we would no longer need to make amends through our karma. For example, a person who puts out the eyes of another is more imperfect than someone who has not done this, and a subsequent karma must bring it about that this person will perform a proportionate, corresponding good deed. For only then will this person be again the human being he was before he committed the sin. So if we really reflect on the nature of the human being, then we would never entertain the thought that if one has put out the eyes of another human being, one would simply be forgiven, and that karma would thereby have been balanced out again. Thus everything in karma is actually as it should be, that our debt will not be reduced by even one penny, but must be paid in full. But there is another aspect to be considered with regard to guilt. The guilt we incur The sin we incur is not merely a personal fact, but also an objective cosmic fact. 
it also is something for the world, for the universe. This is where we must now make a distinction. The transgression we have carried out is compensated for through our karma, but the act of putting out another person's eyes is something that has actually happened. It is a real fact. If we have, let us say, put out someone's eyes in the present incarnation and then do something in the next incarnation that compensates for this deed, then the fact that we put out someone's eyes hundreds of years ago remains a fact for the objective course of the world. It is an objective fact in the universe as a whole. For ourselves, we make compensation for it later. The stain we have inflicted upon ourselves is adjusted by us in our karma. But the objective, universal fact remains. We cannot wipe it out by removing this imperfection from ourselves. We must distinguish between the consequences of a sin for ourselves and the consequences of a sin for the objective course of the world. It is extremely important that we make this distinction. And now, if I may, I would like to insert an esoteric consideration that can throw more light onto this matter. If one surveys the course of human evolution since the mystery of Golgotha, and without being permeated with the Christ being, gains access to the Akashic record, then it is easy, very easy indeed, to be led astray. For the Akashic record will show records which frequently do not correspond to what one can find in the karmic development of a particular individual. For example, suppose that a person lived, say in the year A.D. 733, and incurred guilt by committing a serious crime. If one then examines the Akashic record, initially without having any kind of connection with the Christ being, then, lo and behold, one cannot find this specific guilt in the Akashic record. If one then draws nearer to the individual in question, who continued to incarnate, and investigates that person's karma, then one discovers the following. One finds that there is indeed still something in this individual's karma that he must pay off. It ought to be there, recorded in the Akashic record for that particular time period, but it is not there. If one investigates this karma, then one finds that there is indeed guilt that needs to be paid off, that one ought to be able to find the guilt related to that particular incarnation in the Akashic record, but that it is not there. What a contradiction! This is an objective fact that may occur in many cases. I may meet a person today, and if, through grace, I am permitted to know something about this person's karma, then I may well find that some misfortune or blow of fate has befallen this person and is part of his karma, and that this misfortune is the counterbalance to an earlier guilt. If I then investigate his earlier incarnations and review what he perpetrated at that time, then I do not find this actual deed recorded in the Akashic record. How does this come about? This is a consequence of the fact that Christ effectively has taken upon himself the objective debt. The moment I permeate myself with Christ, the moment I investigate the Akashic record with Christ, 
I discover the actual deed. Christ has taken it into his kingdom and bears its essence further, meaning that if I leave out Christ, I cannot find this deed in the Akashic record. The following distinction should be noted. Karmic justice remains, but as regards the effects of a specific guilt in the spiritual world, Christ intervenes, takes this guilt into his kingdom, and bears it further. Christ is the being who, because he belongs to another kingdom, is able to extinguish our debts and our sins in the world and take them upon himself. What then does the Christ on the cross on Golgotha actually say to the malefactor on the left? He does not articulate it, but it is there in the very fact that he does not speak it. He says to the malefactor on the left, quote, What you have done will continue to have an effect in the spiritual world, not merely in the physical world. Quote. To the malefactor on the right, he says, quote, Today you shall be with me in paradise. Close quote. This means, quote, I am with your deed. Later on, you yourself will, through your karma, have to deal with what your deed signifies for you. But what the deed signifies for the world, that, close quote, if I may use a trivial expression, continue, quote, is my concern. Close quote. This is what Christ says. The distinction made here is a very important one indeed. It is a matter that has significance not only for the time after the mystery of Golgotha, but also for the time before the mystery of Golgotha. Some of the friends here will remember that in earlier lectures I have pointed out that it is not a mere legend, but an actual fact that Christ descended to the dead after his death, that in doing so he also accomplished something for the souls who in previous ages had incurred guilt and sins. This is where errors set in if someone without being permeated with Christ approaches the Akashic record and investigates the earth evolution before the mystery of Golgotha. Such a person will then misunderstand many things in the Akashic record. For this reason, I was not at all surprised that, for example, Ledbetter, who in reality knows nothing about Christ, made the most abstruse statements about the evolution of the earth in his book titled Man, Whence, How, and Whither. For only through being permeated with the Christ impulse can a soul become capable of seeing things as they really are, things which, throughout the evolution of the earth, even in the time before the mystery of Golgotha, were arranged and oriented toward the mystery of Golgotha. Karma relates to the successive incarnations of the human being. Everything pertaining to karmic justice and its significance must be viewed with that judgment which is our earthly judgment. What Christ does for humanity must be measured by a judgment that belongs to worlds other than this earthly world. And if it were not so, if this were not the case, what would happen? Let us consider the end of the earth phase of evolution, the time when human beings will have gone through their earthly incarnations. 
What will then certainly have come to pass is that all debts must have been paid off to the last penny. Human souls will have had to balance out their karma in some way or other. But let us now imagine that all guilt had continued to exist in the earthly world, that all this guilt would go on working in the earth. Then people would approach this end of the earth period with their karma balanced out, but the earth would not be ready to develop into the Jupiter condition. The whole of earthly humanity would then be there without a dwelling place, without the possibility of developing further and passing over to the Jupiter stage. The fact that the whole earth evolves together with human beings is the outcome of the deed of Christ. Everything that would otherwise have piled up for the earth as guilt, all this would have cast the earth into darkness and we would have no planet for our further evolution. Through our karma, we can care for ourselves, but not for humanity as a whole, and not for what in earth evolution is connected with the whole evolution of humanity. Let us be clear then that our karma will indeed not be taken from us, but that our guilt and our sins will be blotted out with respect to the earth evolution. As a consequence, of what has come into effect through the mystery of Golgotha. Now, we must of course also be clear that all this cannot simply be bestowed on human beings without their participation, that it cannot become theirs without their cooperation. And this is shown quite clearly in the words from the cross on Golgotha which I have cited. We are shown quite clearly how the malefactor on the right has accepted into his soul an inkling of a non-earthly kingdom where things are very different from the way they are in the earthly kingdom. As human beings we must fill our souls with the substance content of the Christ being. We must have taken something of the Christ into our souls, as it were, so that the Christ is active in us and bears us into a kingdom where, although we do not have the power to invalidate our karma, it comes to pass through Christ that our debts and sins are blotted out with respect to the external world. This has been beautifully represented pictorially, particularly in painting. How could anyone fail to be profoundly impressed by a picture of the Last Judgment with Christ as judge, such as the one by Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel? What are such paintings based on? Let us initially not consider the deeply esoteric facts, but look instead at the pictorial image that here stands before our souls. We see the righteous and the sinners. It would, however, be possible to present this picture differently from the way Michelangelo as a Christian has painted it, namely in such a way that human beings at or after the end of the earth period would have seen their karma and would have said to themselves, quote, Yes, I have indeed paid off my karma, but everywhere in the spiritual world there are my sins, written on brass iron tablets. They are a heavy burden for the earth. They must destroy the earth. For myself, I have made compensation, but there is my guilt written everywhere. Close quote. But this would not be the truth. It could indeed be presented in this way, 
but it would not be the truth. For through Christ's dying on Golgotha, human beings will not see tablets inscribed with their sins. Instead, they will see the one who has taken them upon himself. They will see, united with the being of Christ, everything that would otherwise have been there spread out in the Akashic Record. In place of the Akashic Record, Christ stands before them, having taken all these things upon himself. We are here looking into deep secrets of the earth's existence. But what must come about in order to see the true state of things in this realm? What is needed is that human beings, irrespective of whether they are righteous or sinners, have the possibility of looking upon Christ. That they not look upon an empty place where the Christ should stand. The connection with the Christ is necessary and the malefactor on the right actually bears witness to his connection with the Christ in what he says. And even though Christ has, as it were, commissioned those who work in his spirit to forgive sins, this was never intended to mean that it would encroach upon karma. What it does mean is that the earthly kingdom will be safeguarded for those who have a connection with Christ from the consequences, the spiritual consequences of guilt and sin, which are objective facts, even when compensation is made for them through a later karma. What does it signify for the human soul when someone who is commissioned to speak in the name of Christ says, quote, Your sins are forgiven, close quote, Matthew 9, 2. It means that the person in question has the insight to be able to affirm Quote, it is true that you will have to await your karmic settlement, but Christ has transformed your guilt and sin, so that later you will not have to bear the terrible sorrow of looking back upon your guilt and seeing that through this guilt you have destroyed a part of the earth's existence. Close quote. Christ blots it out. But a certain level of consciousness is necessary, is demanded, and those who are in a position to forgive sins may rightly demand it, namely a consciousness of one's guilt and a consciousness of the fact that Christ can take it upon himself. Then the saying, quote, your sins are forgiven, close quote, signifies a cosmic fact and not a karmic fact. There is a specific instance where Christ shows us in a most wonderful way how he stands to this question, so wonderfully that it penetrates deep, deep into our hearts. Picture in your souls the scene of the woman taken in adultery, John 8, 1 through 11, how she is brought before him by those who were condemning her, how they appear before him with the woman, and how Christ responds to them in a twofold way. The one way is that he writes in the earth. The other is that he forgives, that he does not judge at all, that he does not condemn. Why does he write in the earth? because karma holds sway, because karma is objective justice. For the woman taken in adultery, her act cannot be obliterated. Christ writes it in the earth. But the situation is different with respect to the spiritual, the extra-earthly consequence. This is what Christ takes upon himself. In quotes, he forgives, does not mean that he blots out in an absolute sense, but rather 
that he takes upon himself the consequences of what objectively has been done. Now think for a moment what it means for the human soul when it is able to say to itself, quote, Yes, I have done this particular thing in the world. It does not impact my ongoing development, for I do not remain as imperfect as I was when I committed the deed. I am permitted to regain my more perfect state in the further course of my karma by making amends for the deed. But I cannot undo it for the earth evolution. Close quote. Human beings would have to bear unspeakable suffering if it were not for the fact that a being united himself with the earth, a being who undoes for the earth what can no longer be changed by us. This being is the Christ. What he takes away from us is not subjective karma, but rather the objective spiritual effects of our deeds, the guilt. This is what we must follow up on in our hearts. Only then shall we understand that Christ is in truth that being who is intimately connected with all of humanity, with earthly humanity as a whole. The earth exists for the sake of humanity, meaning that Christ is connected with the whole earth as well. As human beings we have the inherent weakness, a consequence of the Luciferic temptation, that although we are indeed able to redeem ourselves subjectively through karma, we would not be able to redeem the earth at the same time. That is accomplished by the cosmic being, the Christ. We understand why some in our movement are not quite able to recognize that Christianity is in full accord with the idea of karma. These are people who introduce into their understanding of anthroposophy a strong form of egotism, who, even though they do not put it into words, really think and feel, quote, as long as I am able to redeem myself through my karma, what does the world matter to me? Close quote. They are quite content if they can speak only of karmic adjustment. But this is not enough in itself. Human beings would be purely luciferic beings if they were to think only of themselves. We are members of the whole world, and we must think of the world with thoughts of devotedness. The way we should think about this is that we can indeed, egotistically, that is, for ourselves, redeem ourselves through our karma but that we cannot redeem the whole earth existence at the same time. This is where the Christ enters. And the moment we decide not to think only of our own I, capital, is the moment we must think of something else outside our I. Of what must we think? Of the Christ in me, as Paul says. Then we are united with him and with the whole earth existence, then we no longer think of our own self-redemption, but say, quote, not I and my own redemption, not I, but the Christ in me and the redemption of the earth, Close quote. Many believe that they interpret the meaning of Christianity correctly and that they may therefore call themselves true Christians when they speak of others, anthroposophical Christians, for instance, as heretics. This surely is not very Christian, one may well ask whether it is really Christian to think, as some do, that we may do whatever we like and that Christ has actually only come into the world to take all this away from us, to forgive our sins, so that we have nothing more to do with our karma, with our sins. I think there is another word more applicable to this kind of thinking than the word Christian, 
Perhaps the word convenient would be better. It would indeed be convenient if all we needed to do was repent and then have everything we had perpetrated in the world wiped out from the whole of our later karma. No, our sins are not wiped out from our karma, but they can be blotted out from the earth evolution, a realm we cannot penetrate ourselves because of the inherent human weakness that is the result of the Luciferic temptation. But this is what Christ accomplishes. With the redemption of our sins, a certain pain is taken away from us, the pain of knowing that we have inflicted on the earth evolution an objective guilt for all eternity. But we must, of course, have a serious interest in this. If we do, and if we look at things in this way, then we will develop a greater earnestness with respect to many other things as well, and be able to connect it to our true understanding of the Christ. A profound earnestness will be connected with it, and many elements contained in other conceptions of Christ, which will then seem trivial and cynical in comparison, will also fall away. For all the things that have been discussed today, and this can be corroborated point by point with the most important passages in the New Testament, all these things provide evidence of the following. Everything that Christ is to us stems from the fact that he is not a being like other human beings, but rather a being who came from above, that is, from the cosmos, and entered into earth evolution at the baptism by John in the Jordan. Everything points to the cosmic nature of Christ, and anyone who grasps in a deeper sense how Christ stands with regard to sin and guilt may come to realize because human beings could not, in the course of their earthly existence, blot out their guilt for the earth as a whole, a cosmic being had to descend, so that it would yet be possible for the earth guilt to be redeemed. True Christianity cannot do otherwise than view Christ as a cosmic being. Then the real meaning of the words, not I but Christ in me, will penetrate deeply into our souls. Then, out of this insight, something will transmit and radiate into our souls, something that can only be expressed in the words, quote, When I can say not I, but Christ in me, in that moment I recognize that I shall be lifted out of the earthly domain, that something lives in me which has significance for the cosmos, and that I am worthy, as a human being, to bear something in my soul that is extra-earthly, just as I bear within my constitution an extra-earthly being as a consequence of the Saturn, Sun, and Moon phases of evolution. The immense significance of being imbued with Christ will enter the consciousness of human beings. Then we will be able to combine the Pauline saying, not I, but Christ in me, with a feeling as well. The feeling that we must indeed become deeply serious about our inner responsibility toward Christ. Anthroposophy will bring it about that within this Christ consciousness our feeling of responsibility works in such a way that we would not at every opportunity presume to say, I thought so, and because I thought so, I had a right to say it. Our materialistic age even promotes this attitude and carries it further and further. But is it not actually a desecration of the Christ in us? a renewed crucifixion of the Christ in us, 
when we are so lacking in sense that we shout out to the world, be it in spoken or written form, whatever we believe at any particular moment, without having investigated it? A feeling will increasingly emerge. If the significance of Christ is taken up in all earnestness, that we must prove ourselves worthy of the Christ by becoming more and more conscientious about our perception of Him, of this cosmic principle within us. It would not be difficult to think that those who at every opportunity are ready to repent an offense, for example, telling lies about people and then hoping to wipe out the lies by repenting, do not want to receive Christ as a cosmic principle. Those, however, who want to prove themselves worthy of Christ in their soul will first ask themselves whether they ought to say a certain thing, even though they are, at least momentarily, convinced of it. Many things will change when a true conception of Christ comes into the world. All those who say or write things of which they have no knowledge will come to realize that they are thereby desecrating the Christ in the human soul. This will also mean an end to the excuse, quote, I thought it was so, I said it in good faith, close quote. Christ wants more than good faith. He wants to lead human beings to the truth. He even said, quote, the truth will make you free, close quote, John 8.32. But where did Christ ever say that it is possible for people to think as he would have them think, and yet at the same time to write or proclaim things to the world of which they know nothing. Much indeed will be changed. A great deal of modern writing could not exist any longer if people proceeded from the principle of proving themselves worthy of the saying, Not I, but the Christ in me. The canker of our decadent civilization will be rooted out when those voices are silenced which, without real conviction, shout out things into the world or spoil paper with printer's ink without having satisfied themselves first that they are speaking the truth. In this connection, we have had to experience many things in the theosophical movement. How readily were things excused with, quote, yes, but the person who made the statement was at that moment convinced of its truth, close quote. What does a conviction of this type amount to? nothing but the greatest irresponsibility, pure flippancy. It is not for personal reasons, but rather because of the seriousness of the situation that I must draw your attention to the fact that there is no excuse for the president of the Theosophical Society to have put before that society the frivolous lie of the Jesuit story. And even though it has now long been dismissed, it is mentioned here to point out the characteristic aspects of such a thing. People then said, but the president withdrew it after a few weeks. Close quote. So much the worse when someone in a responsible position says things which then after a few weeks have to be withdrawn. For this is where world judgment, not personal judgment, begins. This situation must be seen in the light of the distinction that must be made between the subjective karma at work in the eye of the human being and that which may be called objective karma. For no word shall be lost. Every person must make compensation for the harm that he or she has done. 
Words cannot intervene in these things. Rather, we must take the facts in the same way as Christ took the facts in the case of the adulteress. He wrote the sin into the earth. It is important to point out that egoism must be overcome in the realm of the spiritual scientific movement. It must be clearly understood that in meeting the world, what is needed is an objective judgment, not just a subjective judgment. A Christian conscience, for in a certain sense that is what we may call it, will gradually emerge as Christ enters human souls, as souls become more and more conscious of the presence of Christ, and as Paul's words become a reality, not I, but Christ in me. Our souls will increasingly be filled with the consciousness that we should not just say what we think, but that we must verify whether what we say holds up to an objective judgment. Christ will be a teacher of truth for the soul, a teacher of the highest sense of responsibility. He will imbue human souls with it when they increasingly come to experience the full weight of the saying, not I, but Christ in me. The end of Lecture 8